Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Wow, so I'm installed. But yeah, do I, like, so do I get rotated every 60,000 miles to 30? What's, I'm not sure how this works, but hope we got lots of miles. Um, something else fun happened this week. Heidi, well, last week, Heidi and I had our, listen to how many years this is, third anniversary. So I know, I know, we're still working on it. But it made me remember back to uh, when we were planning our, our wedding together. We'd saved up some money. We wanted to keep, you know, a good budget on this and, and keep it low. We had some amazing, amazing blessings. Um, uh, Benny and Stephanie Albright, their catering company, cut us a smoking deal. And by the way, they're awesome. So if you ever need Brown Brothers Catering, is that what we're still calling it? Yeah. They're amazing. It was fantastic. And we got this beautiful venue that was just rock bottom price because it happened to be open. Um, even John Lynch, who did our wedding, he, he just said, no, no, this is my gift to you. So people, I mean, just we were saving all kinds of money. It was really wonderful. Um, and so uh, even our honeymoon was to Estes Park, and the cabin we went to was, was free. Our, our friends loaned us their house. So, But there was one point in this planning process where it just about gave me a panic attack. Um, <clears throat> Heidi was wedding dress shopping. Yeah, yeah. And being thrifty, being very, you know, budget conscious, she went out to some consignment and resale places, and she came back with a dress that was on sale for 15 Oh, for $1,000. She says it's thought We have a different memory, but um, <laughs> she's right, I'm sure. $1,000 dress. And apparently I didn't disguise my panic very well because I said something like, uh, <clears throat> Hey, babe, that sound, seems like a lot of money for, for a party dress that you'll wear one night only, like, right? Um, and, and Heidi said, well, honey, I was looking at the dress on the mannequin, and, and, and then I found myself trying it on, and, and then she said, it was, it was like the devil was whispering in my ear, you look fabulous in that dress, <laughs> buy it. So then I, in my worst pastor-husband voice, I said to her, well, you know how I would deal with that kind of temptation. I'd say, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> and Heidi, being brilliant as she was, says, well, well, I did. But then he said, it looks fabulous from back here, too. So, <laughs> She did take the dress back and found another perfect dress. But, um, and only half of that story was true. But... Uh, <laughs> This week, we are going to look at sin and temptation, so let's pray. <laughs> Father, thanks. Thanks that you're with us. Thank you for um, these people. Thank you for Hope Covenant. Thank you for what you're up to in the life of this church, that you had something special in mind for this group, this people, uh, way back when this church was planted, and your plans continue to move forward and expand, and we are so excited to partner with what you are doing uh, through your kingdom and through this community of people. Uh, we love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in a series that um, we've been following a chapter a week in an all-church study on a book named The Cure, written by our friend John Lynch. We're in week four, and um, it, one of the primary images we're using is, is are we living a life out of 
grace and trusting God, or are we living a life where we're just trying to grind it out? It's just religion and performance, and we're trying to go it that way. And so we've been using this metaphor, but, but it makes me think back to before all of that happens. Just think about maybe even um, at the point in your life as a follower of Jesus, you made a decision. Right? You made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe your decision came out of a big, dramatic you know, conversion with this amazing testimony you were saved from a life of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Um, or maybe greed, lust, and self-centered living. Um, whatever it is that you were you know, saved out of. Um, some of us actually grew up in it too, right? Like, like I did. And maybe you decided one day at the wise old age of you know, three or four years old, um, that you wanted Jesus in your heart, like I did. And so wherever you are in the continuum, if you are somebody that is a follower of Jesus, whenever that happened, however that happened for you, there's this miracle, and we've talked about this the past few weeks, there's this miracle that takes place the moment that you became his. You're infused with a new life, a new identity, the life of God, we've learned the last few weeks. The very DNA of the Father flows through you, and you are changed. Even before we can comprehend all of what's happened to us, once you become his, you are change. But, but especially those of us who maybe decided to follow Jesus maybe when you were a teenager or, or as an adult, it doesn't take uh, much time for some of the questions to start arising in our life. We're, we're glad that we're you know, saved. Um, but eventually we start thinking, wait, wait, if Jesus died for me, if he took away my sins, if he made me new, if he calls me a child of God, then, then how come I keep struggling with, with sin and temptation? Like, is there something wrong with me? Sometimes we even wonder when we see ourselves behaving in certain ways, is this faith thing even real? Or, or maybe when I said the words, uh, maybe I said them in the wrong order to pray. And so we get on that cycle again and again. And depending on maybe the religious culture that you are hanging around in, sometimes people answer that question like, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep sinning? They answer it in ways that aren't very helpful. Very commonly, we push people toward that performance, religious duty side of things. Um, I think personally, I probably you know, prayed the prayer um, at least 100 times because in the culture that I grew up in, it seemed like at least some of the people around there preached eternal insecurity Right? So if you, you know, essentially, if you commit a sin that you haven't re- repented of yet, right, and then you walk out of these doors tonight and you get hit by a Mack truck. Why is it a Mack truck, by the way? It's always a Mack truck. Right? <laughs> but if that happens and you die with unrepented sin, you might not make it into heaven. And I was afraid of going to hell, especially as a kid, so I was constantly repenting of my sin. And I rededicated my life to Christ until my rededicator was worn out. Um, But that's just no way to live. And and that's not how God wants us to relate to him. He wants us to be confident of his grace and his love for us. And so we, again, this last number of weeks, we've been um, looking at this book, The Cure, together. And and by the way, if you want to join us on Wednesday night, there's about 40 of us that are coming together and splitting into groups to go deeper. Um, And I'm not going to get to all of the message today just with our time, so you're You might want to come just so we can even go deeper with the unanswered stuff that we're going to leave out here. But again, the the picture that we're operating from uh, in this series are these two roads that that, uh, 
the book talks about. The one road they labeled pleasing God, one road they labeled trusting God. And, and on the pleasing God side, it's not that pleasing God is a bad thing, um, but when we think that we have to perform to strive and please him that way, we, we turn it into religion. And when we turn our faith in God into just a religion where it's all about my effort and my duty and my performance, and then we blow it, then we have to start wearing masks. And we've said we don't want to live on that pleasing God, striving side of the path. We, we want to go down the path of trusting God, trusting that this isn't a relationship, or this isn't a religion. This is about having a relationship with God. This is about his, his grace. It's about trusting what he says about you and me so that I can take off my mask and be my authentic self, warts and all. I don't have to hide because of amazing grace. So with all of that in mind, again, back to our dilemma for this week. As a Christian, a child of God, I find myself still sinning. So I want to know what's the solution. And again, the answer depends largely upon which path we take in our Christian walk. Are we on the religion or the relationship side? Like if I'm on the relationship side of things and I trust the grace of Jesus, um, I can actually trust that the grace that was enough to save me is enough to mature and solve me. That's how relationship works, and it's not an instant thing. Because, you know, we enter into this faith in Christ as a relationship with God through grace, but way too often we find ourselves wandering back down this religious performance path where we are striving and earning. And on that striving and earning path, I think that my performance earns me a way that I've finally pleased God. I think, okay, I've been saved by grace, um, but since I struggle with sin, I must have to strive harder. I must have to get serious about my sin. Um, and so is that how we beat our, our hang-ups or our habits or our addictions, destructive patterns in our life? Is that how we do it? Do we, do we strive? Do we work really hard? Is it up to us? Or is there another way? I mean, honestly, those of you who, like me, know and can instantly probably recall the ugly sins or struggles that keep popping up in our life, the stupid things we do that we're so sick of, the ways that we hurt people that we love and we don't want to do it anymore. We want to be free, right? We want to be free. We want to get rid of that stuff and we want to get rid of sin even. But too often, again, we turn to sin management. We decide we're going to control our sin. We think we can just beat it on our own. Now, the cycle of sin is described really well in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It describes the pattern of how we get into the mess that we get into in the first place. I'll just read it here. But each person is tempted when they are carried away and enticed by their own strong desire. And when their evil desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it brings forth death. So notice just kind of how the verse here lays it out for us. The whole thing starts here with their own strong desire. Um, some of your Bibles might even translate it lust. Um, so let's just look at the word desire, right? Now, first of all, desire is not an evil thing. Strong desires, even, in and of themselves, are not sinful. Like, we all have legitimate needs, right? We all need to know that we are loved and accepted. We need to know that we're not alone. We need to know that we're valuable. Those are just some of the legitimate needs that God created us with. But when we seek to meet a legitimate need and we do it in an illegitimate way, that's where the trouble really starts. 
So let's say one of us is lonely, and instead of finding legitimate ways to satisfy that need for, for companionship or intimacy, instead, just shortcut and turn to sex. That's how it just goes down the wrong trail. It started out with a good, strong desire, but we take it in a different direction. Now, James uses the phrase here, uh, carried away and enticed. And you even think about that just like being carried away, right? Even carried away sounds kind of like a fun thing, right? And, and enticement, that sounds like, you know, it's alluring. It might be something we really, really enjoy. I mean, truthfully, um, we don't really get enticed by something that, you know, smells bad because enticement is something that feels good. It's something that really draws us in. It's something that's appealing to us. Otherwise, it wouldn't entice us. So let's just on the front end be real about this. Sin is pleasurable. Let's not lie about that. It's destructive, but it's pleasurable, at least on the front end. And this passage here in James shows us there's this cycle that's involved in sin. And when I look at this verse, I think, wow, that's really simple. I think it's spelled out really clearly. It shows us that a person is tempted. They're carried away. They're enticed by their own evil desire and lust. And then when lust is conceived, it says it gives birth to sin. Once sin uh, is there, it grows up, it brings forth death. Just in the reading, there's kind of this idea, like there's just one thing leads to another. Like, do you see that on that and hear it when I read it? Just one thing leads to another when you look at this verse. In fact, it seems so simple that I think if we would have kept our middle schoolers in here today, we could um, probably, uh, they would understand these verses as well. Because it's just basic. And the truth it communicates is really, really clear. So here's a couple basics from the text. Verse 14, um, the phrase here says, when they are carried away and enticed. So carried away, uh, interpreted from the Greek, it carried away, that word is interpreted led or lured or to be compelled. And the carried away translation we have, it's actually a hunting term. It means to be led, to be compelled, to be allured. And how about the next word here? Enticed is also in there. And the enticed word in the Greek is a fishing term. It literally means to bait a hook, right? So to bait a hook. And here's the kicker. At the beginning of verse 14, we see this phrase, but each one is tempted. Each one is tempted. Um, and if you do a little bit of study on this one, the phrase each one means uniquely. Right? So let's just dress this verse out from the top here. So each one of us is uniquely tempted by our own strong desire. Pause right there. Our own strong desire points out that each one of our temptations are custom made for us. Right? We're uniquely tempted by our own particular bait. So we are tempted that way. Uniquely and particularly, our temptation is tied to the bait that works and the bait that works on you might not be the bait that works on me, but the bait that works on both of us is consistent with our own strong, unmet desires or even our lust. So in other words, there are going to be certain kind of baits that work on me that would never work on you. In fact, you'd probably look at my bait and you'd reasonably, at least some of you, wonder, Doug, how on earth did you bite that? Why in the world did you react to that? Why is that something that's tempting to you? And before you get all weird on me and start wondering about mine, let me turn it back to you. <laughs> Just relax, you know, look at yourself. You know, when we look in the mirror, there's, there's probably a bait 
Um, some of us have this stuff in common, but there might be a bait that, um, that you would bite on that I wouldn't touch because I don't like how it smells or I don't like how it tastes. And again, there's overlap in how we're all tempted in this stuff. But each one of us is baited accordingly and uniquely according to their own stuff. I'd say that probably makes it pretty important for us to know our stuff, right? And most of us, if we're honest and even sit with it for even a moment, we can easily pinpoint our own vulnerabilities. And it's really good for us to be self-aware, right? It's good for us to know what our weaknesses are and then not just to know them, but to be open with the people around you that you trust, living with nothing hidden. Nothing hidden. And I've been a part of men's groups and pastors groups for over three decades. And that's a primary theme for us. Now, I heard about another group um, uh, uh, like like that, um, some priests actually. Um, this group was made up of four priests. They were spending, I think it was a couple days up in a cabin, and one night they decided they were going to confess to each other their biggest temptation. So the first of the four priests says, um, well, this is kind of embarrassing, but my um, big temptation is looking at attractive women, and, and one time I actually got a magazine full of women in swimsuits. Second priest says, my temptation's far worse. It's kind of... <sighs> kind of bad here. I don't know if I should tell you, but uh, my temptation is gambling. In fact, one Saturday, instead of preparing my sermon, my homily, I went to the racetrack and bet on the ponies. Feeling encouraged, the third priest said, well, well, mine is worse still. I sometimes can't control the urge to drink. One time I actually broke into the cabinet where we store the communion wine. The fourth priest was quiet for a little while, and finally he fessed up and said, brothers, I hate to say this, but my temptation is worst of all. I love to gossip, and if you guys will excuse me, i got to go make a few phone calls. <laughs> so it is important for us to know our areas of weakness. It's also important for us to trust the right people, okay? We'll touch on that a little bit later. But if we look back at this cycle of sin and knowing our own stuff where one thing leads to another, there's a bait that's unique to each one of us. And, and I thought, you know, what if, what if we even imagined talking about this with one of our middle school kids, or maybe you're the parent of a 13-year-old. Um, that'd be really easy to do, right? The 13-year-old parents are chuckling at me right now, yeah. Um, just imagine you want to sit down with your 13-year-old child. You're going to tell him or her about the sin cycle and how we get hooked. And we might say something, you know, like... You see, son, there's this paradox involved in the situation of the sin cycle. On the front end, it looks like life, but it yields death, and there are things on the front end that, that feel like death, but they're really life. So I want you to press through that difficulty, which feels terrible, so that you can receive life. Okay, son, does that work for you? Right? Anybody think that would actually work just like that? Yeah, no, that would not work. Not with any 13-year-olds I know. But... Um, I think if we even think about the whole bait situation of this and we work the concept a little differently than what I just intellectually tried to proclaim there. Um, in fact, the text works this concept a little differently than just an intellectual exercise. Um, maybe we'd sit back with, with our kid and say, hey, you know, it's like when we go fishing. In fact, this might be a good conversation, parents or grandparents, to have with your son or daughter when you take them out fishing. 
Although, as most of us know here, uh, fishing in Arizona is generally terrible. So Noah and I, we don't care to fish anymore. We'd spent way too many times fishing and not catching. So just so you know, if you take your kid fishing in Arizona, you might cause them to hate fishing. But with that little disclaimer right there, let's just pretend, okay? So pretend that you found a good spot, right? You and your kid, you're sitting there, you're putting the bait on the hook. You've got the worms, you've got the leeches and the minnows. And, and you say something like, you know, son... We all use different baits. We came to the bait shop here. We picked up a bunch of different stuff. We didn't just get minnows or, or leeches or night crawlers. We actually picked all three. Because we're just never sure what the fish are going to bite on. I mean, so we fished for a while. We tried these leeches. They didn't work. Nothing's biting on leeches today. So we changed the bait. We switched over to minnows. Maybe even we'd say, hey, last time, remember, we used minnows, and we were hitting them like crazy, right? That was great, but, you know... When we bait these hooks, and it'd be kind of fun to even do this while you're baiting a hook, we just hold it up. We've got that nice night crawler on there. We'd say, hey, here, here, fishy, fishy, fishy. Here's some, here's some lunch that I'm just going to give to you, right? But the thing is, we're not feeding the fish, are we? We're not feeding them at all. We don't really have any desire to feed the fish. If we want to catch you, uh, if we want to entice fish, we're going to have to put something on the hook that smells really good that tastes really good, and that you are very drawn to. Now, that's probably about all we could get a 13-year-old to grasp in the moment, maybe even not that much, but I would hope that that image would stick. Because it's true for us too, right? We're not feeding the fish, and neither is the enemy of our souls. The enemy of our soul is not feeding us. And when we take the bait... It gives birth to sin and death. One thing leads to another. It's just the way life works. Now, any of us that have any sort of measure of self-awareness, we know, right? We know our primary struggle. It's almost always a particular sin or an area that we know we're vulnerable or prone to. We blow it. We do this thing. We hate it that we do it. We find ourselves back there again and again doing the same thing. And maybe for you, it looks like lying, um, deception, manipulation, fantasy, addiction, substance abuse, lust, porn, gossip. Our particular weakness can look like any number of things. Maybe, maybe it's drinking too much or getting in trouble when you drink alcohol. And at some point, whatever it is, we notice, wow, I have a problem here. This isn't good. Like I've hurt myself again or I've hurt someone else and I feel stupid that I, that I did this terrible thing again because our particular bait that we are drawn to is fueled by lies that we believe about how legitimate needs can be met so for example if you believe that your desire for intimacy which is planted in you by God but if you think intimacy can be satisfied with illicit sex then that's your bait So instead of trusting God and his provision for you in the area of intimacy, now we find ourselves serving that desire, the desire for sex, and you will sacrifice everything to get it. It has become your God. Or if you or I believe that our strong desire for significance, again, significance, that desire, planted in us by God, it can be a good thing. But if we think that it can be met through work and through your job, Well, then that's your bait. And people who believe that lie will put work above everything else. And to our performance, we will become slaves. 
And, and sadly, some of us are, are hooked and we don't even know it. Like we might even think that we're kind of getting away with it and that we're unaffected by the things that we've been doing and we're swimming away. But friends, at some point that hook is in and it will be set and you will be had. Jeff Van Vonderen, a prominent psychologist uh, who I had the pleasure of working with for a short time, said this about that. He said, anything in your life that you refuse to deal with will deal with you. And when it does, you will think it's happening to you. So remember, the bait is not the food. It's not food at all. The bait's not there to feed the fish. It's the hook that's used to snare the fish. And we mess around, and suddenly, before we know it, we're hooked. We can't get out of it. Because on the front end, the bait tastes really good, and then it kills. Now, none of this is news to us, right? I just put words to what you already know about sin and struggle in your own lives. Like, we sin. We often get caught in a cycle of sin, And at some point we notice, I've got a problem here that's not good, right? And in that James passage here, it just shows us one thing leads to another. Now, the the authors of The Cure have compiled an image that shows the cycle of sin and kind of a larger picture of what it looks like when we try to control our sin on our own self-effort, right? We try to manage our sin apart from God by our own self-effort. They call it the control cycle. And so... I want to run through it here. Um, and let's, let's, um, let's take the example of, of lust. How about? We're going to run through this in the example, a real, you know, so it's not just, um, just theoretical here. So if I'm someone who struggles with lust, but I operate out of shame, I don't know who I am, I don't know how God actually sees me and how he accepts me, what we've been talking about these past few weeks, but I'm living in this path of trying to perform and impress God, and it's all up to my self-effort. When lust comes knocking at the door, um, then I have these unmet needs that I can't or won't meet in legitimate ways, and because I'm in hiding, trying to perform for God, I'm living behind a mask, right? So here it starts out, the, the first one. In fact, let's flip to the next slide. might be a little, there we go. The cycle looks like this. First of all, I'm building defenses. I'm putting up walls. I can't get my needs met, but I can't be myself. And so I put these walls of isolation up, which, by the way, make it way harder to meet our legitimate needs in real ways. Because with those isolating walls around us, sure, it might protect us, but those walls keep us alone. So instead of true intimacy, I settle for lust which is never going to meet my intimacy need. Next, this leads to thinking unhealthy self-thoughts, right? So I get stuck in this shame-driven lie area. I think I'm worthless, I'm not enough, I don't deserve to have these needs met. I'm always gonna be alone, I'm always gonna be isolated. There's nothing or no one who would be able to meet these needs, not even God which then gives us room for temptation to come in. Now, temptation, we think, hey, hey, this other thing over here, this could help meet my need. This could help this internal pain that I'm feeling in this area of intimacy. 
So whether it's a relationship with someone who's not your spouse or some other area or porn or any of that, um, it starts to look good. The bait looks good. It says, well, well, that could help. I don't have to live so empty and alone and afraid. Maybe that other thing will quench the thirst of my empty soul. And so we entertain the thought. Now, by the way, right here at Temptation, we haven't sinned yet, right? Temptation is not sin, but it is a warning sign. And at some points, you know, we get here to this temptation place. We might pause before we sin. We might try to resist. But if we don't draw on the power of Christ within us, well, then we're, we're stuck, right? So we move to this next place. We think, well, I've got the willpower. I, I can beat this on my own. It's about my self-effort. That's the next stage here. Trying to manage the sin on my own. But friends, if we don't interrupt the cycle here or sooner on this resistance place, then um, we make sure that our mask is in place because we're going to have to hide for what we're about to do. Right? So we start hiding. We hide secrets. We cover our desires. Um, we pretend we won't give in or that we don't even want to, but we're not going to tell anyone because we think, I'm not going to tell somebody. It would be too embarrassing to admit that I'm even struggling with this. Besides, well, I confess I haven't actually done anything yet which leads to the next step in the cycle where we actually do finally do something. We act out. We enter into sin. I came to the door, and I went in. And by the way, there is a rush when we sin. There is a rush that happens, a high, a momentary, at least, satisfaction. But sooner or later, the weight of the sin starts to sink in and that shame kicks in again. And so then the next place, the next thing we do, we withdraw. We withdraw from others. We feel deficient. We think things like, if you only knew what I just did, you'd want nothing to do with me. Um, and so we hide from people who could actually probably help us get out of the mess or clean up our mess. And we're so good at this cycle here. We just keep walking through this deal, right? We don't want to do that either. We don't want to just keep hiding. So eventually, we just kind of justify our behavior. The next step here, justifying our behavior. Well, fine. Yeah, of course I did it. What's the big deal anyway? Everyone needs to have some relief, right? But if your conscience isn't already seared, that doesn't work very long, right? If you have any sensitivity um, and know that the posture of a Christian can't just remain in that justifying area, then we shift over to blaming, right? The next thing, we blame other people. We blame the circumstances. Well, it's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. If she had done this, or if they hadn't treated me like that, then I wouldn't have needed to do what I did. So it's not my fault. It's theirs. And again, we can camp out in this blame thing for a long, long time. There's always someone convenient to blame, isn't there? Sex addicts and other addicts are magicians on this one. And frankly, all of us are magicians on this one because we stubbornly want to excuse our sin. But eventually we feel, you know, enough guilt about it, appropriate guilt even, but, but then we shift into feeling shame. There's tears, there's remorse. This is about beyond feeling guilty about doing something wrong. Shame, I believe in shame that I am deficient, that I am something wrong. And if somebody doesn't come along and remind me of who I really am, who God says I am, even on my worst day, then we can get stuck in this shame cycle and, and just start to lose hope. And we move to that last place of losing hope. We think, what's the use? 
what's the use? And if we look back at the diagram, it just goes back around the track again and again and again. And we do this again. And we get so tired. Because when we are only living in this room of good intentions, this, this religious self-effort world, we think that we can control our behavior through diligence and through intense discipline. Like, I'm going to try really hard to knock it off and show everyone that I'm strong enough to beat this thing, right? I'm not going to do this anymore. I mean, that even sounds like a good American work, worth it, work ethic there, right? It shows the problem is this kind of attitude that I'm going to beat this thing. It shows how much we think of our independent ability to face our sin and how little dependence we place on God's ability to solve our sin, to heal our hearts. And so we just run the track. We run the cycle again and again. We get tripped up. Now, it's kind of like that story where I finally go on a diet, right? And, and a few days in, you know, I get in my car. I'm on my way to work. And I'm craving a donut. And I think, I deserve a donut. I've been doing so well. I've been eating healthy healthy for like two days. I mean, come on, right? Surely one trip to the donut shop can't be all that bad. And so I pray, dear God, oh God, if this would be your will that I'm allowed to eat a donut, then please, there'd be a parking spot in front of Krispy Kreme. And wouldn't you know, the ninth time around the block, (laughs) there it was. Because we can find a way, right? I can find a way. I'm really good at finding my way, one way or another. Like the adapted line from the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation because I can find it just fine myself, right? We can find it. The bait's right there. Sin is pleasurable. Let's not lie. It is. But again, although it is pleasurable, it's destructive. And that passage in James that we have been bouncing off of here, it shows that sin grows up and brings death And I'm not talking just like death as in hellfire and hell in the afterlife. No, no, it brings death here and now. It brings death in our relationships. It brings death instead of life into our bodies. Uh, It brings death into our minds, our souls, our spirits. Rather than living the abundant life that Jesus promised us, we enter into death again and again. And friends, that's the painfully bad news about the nature of sin But there's good news, too. But we're out of time, so come back Wednesday. Just kidding. (laughs) There is good news. And again, um, I'm going to try to summarize this. Um, But if you've been here the last few weeks in this series, hopefully it'll make even more sense. Um, But for, for people, for those of us who are learning to live in the grace and love of God, rather than relying on our own performance, trying to make it happen, um... There's really good news. In fact, one incredible way that helps stop the sin cycle and the control cycle is found at the, near the end of the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And, and out of this verse, I believe, and I think it shows us, that if you want the cycle to stop You have to tell someone else. And usually when we read this confession word, we're thinking, well, after I've blown it, then I confess it. No, no, no. What if we confess? What if we tell someone else before it happens? Like before, in the cycle, before we get to the place where we blow it, where we act out and sin, what if we tell someone that we trust, hey, I'm struggling. 
And if I don't bring this thing, this struggle into the light, I'm pretty sure I know myself, I've done this before, I know where this ends up. Now, again, oftentimes we don't think of confession this way. We think about confessing after we mess up, which is a good thing to do. But the guys that wrote The Cure, um, years before they actually wrote the book, they taught this to me many years ago as a powerful way to live free. Because if, if you tell another person what's going on inside of you when you're struggling, while you're lonely, while you're tempted and you haven't even done anything yet, you can interrupt the cycle before you get to the point of making a huge mess. They said this, the moment you bring it out of the light, so at any point along the way of that cycle, that cycle will stop. Right? The madness, the pain, the damage, all of it stops, and the power of sin is broken. Now, this is so simple of a concept, but I think it's really important. Let me say it again. The power of sin is broken simply by telling someone else what's going on. And by the way, telling the right person, right? Not everyone. You choose a qualified person that you trust. But, but bringing it into the light is the first step to freedom. We've talked about that quite a bit the last year here, about walking in the light, living in the light, letting the light of God shine on us and trusting that it will heal us, not just expose us and make us embarrassed. It will actually heal us. And to do that, we'd really have to trust that the heart of God is good, that he is for us, and that the people he puts around us, he puts around us to be for us. Think about the verse again, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, if we're reading that verse, and we're somebody that's kind of living on that religion side of the spectrum, all about religion and duty, we might think, okay, well, confession, um, confession in that context, well, this is just a magic formula. It's a technique. Or, or we think that confession's only something you do after you've acted out, and you do it, you confess, because you're just trying to get back on good, God's good side, so I confess because, you know, I fear. Um, and by the way, again, confessing after we've acted out is crucial. It is important. But if it's just a way that we think we're going to get back on God's good side again, we've missed the point. Like, we've missed the gift because confession is a gift. See, if we're operating without that religious performance lens, if we start to believe how loved we are by God unconditionally, on our worst day, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, there's nothing that we can do that would make him love us any more, and there's nothing we could do that would cause him to love us any less. If we believe that, then something like confession turns into a gift. John Lynch points out these four things about confession when we trust who God is and who he says we are. He says, confession puts me in touch with Christ's work for my junk. It's a priceless gift to have his work take care of my sin because none of my work can heal my sin. How about this one? He says, confession heals me from sin issues by letting others into my life so they can love me because love is one of God's primary healing agents. Another one, he says, confession, it reminds me that I'm a child of the light already. And because of that truth, I can risk living in the life, light. I can live in the light my 
my stuff exposed and not fear that I'm going to get crushed or condemned or forsaken. And he says, confession is an opportunity to call out to others for protection, even when I'm beginning to give myself permission to go dark with my sin. Like I confess, I tell my brothers, oftentimes I have a group of guys that, that we know when we're in a place like this, we reach out to each other before we get to the place where we do something we'll regret because we let them protect us. See, we remind each other who you are. When you confess and say, hey, I'm thinking about this, I can remind you, you are not that. You are who God says you are. Your heart has been changed. You have Jesus inside of you. You're a loving person. Friends, the power of sin is broken when we come out of hiding. Worship team, will you come? Let me repeat that line. The power of sin is broken when we come out of hiding. Instead of wearing a mask and hiding, we can escape the power of this stuff that hangs on to us. And yes, it takes time, right? A lot of times it's stuff that has to get healed or places that need to be matured, and we need people to help love us into that. But that power of sin is broken when we will risk coming out of hiding. Again, it's what we've been talking about here at Hope the last number of months is walking in the light. And it's beautiful that we get to do that together. We get to do that together. Like, isn't it crazy that God has created others to help us find our way home when we get tra trapped in an area of sin? Like we've been going at it all by ourselves. We're bravely trying to, you know, buck up and fight our way through temptation. And when we live that way, we don't get to experience the love of other people walking with us and helping us. But as John says, we can only be loved when we allow another person to meet our needs. So two questions as we close. The first is this. Will we dare, each of us, to trust God enough to walk in the light? To live open-faced, no hiding, no masks, no pretending, no posing. We trust God enough to live that way. And then the second is this. Will I, will we, dare to be a safe person for others? That when someone comes to you, rather than receiving condemnation or guilt or all kinds of advice about how to fix their stuff, we actually come to them in grace. We remind them of who God says they are and that they are not their sin. And we stand with them because sometimes our sins cause a huge mess that we need somebody to stand with us as we get that mess cleaned up. So will we trust God enough to walk in the light and will we dare to be a safe person for others? Will you stand with me? Jesus invites us to come to him as we are. It all comes out of trusting that we can be free, that we can be forgiven because of the cross, because of his grace, because of his unconditional love. We can come out of darkness and sadness. We can walk in the light together. 
my friends, this is true Christian community. And God, may you make that so of us here at Hope Covenant, that we would be a place so safe that the worst of us could be known and we find that we're loved more and not less when we confess it to each other. Jesus, we come before you now. I pray that you would minister to our hearts in Jesus' name.